0: Overlapping layers bring increasing clarity. To illustrate that, I want you to think about those crime shows that have this big wall of evidence, right? Now, it may start with just a murder weapon and a location, but over time, they add layers and layers of evidence until they have enough information to finally make an arrest. Well, as we continue in Daniel, we're going to Add Layers and Layers of Evidence, because for the remainder of this book, we kind of shift into a new area where we have a variety of Daniel's visions and dreams, and most of the time, they are overlapping layers to what we've already learned in Daniel, and each time, I hope, they bring increasing clarity to our understanding but there's also another important shift that we need to recognize that takes place at this point in Daniel as well. Up until this point, we've been reading a narrative. A narrative is a, a genre of literature that tells a story, and these stories are engaging. We, we remember Daniel in the lion's den for, for the, for, from when we were a kid, right? These are stories that we don't forget. The, the the fiery furnace, and all of these things, it has action, it has a climax, it has redemption. These are incredible stories. But in chapter 7, we shift to a completely different genre. We move from narrative to what is called apocalyptic literature. And so when you hear that word, think about the book of Revelation. In this new genre, we have a lot of mysterious details and kind of vague references. It would be kind of like reading a story that you're following along and then all of a sudden it shifts into poetry. So we could still understand it, but it's going to take more effort to understand how that story continues. Well, the same will be true as we work our way through Daniel. But thankfully, prophecy is always spoken in layers, Because it may be difficult to understand one layer at a time, but there is increasing clarity as those layers overlap and we see increasing detail, which doesn't mean, by the way, that you will have an answer to every possible question you can think of. But if we stop and think about it, that's really not the point of Daniel anyway, is it? You see, Daniel gives us enough information to know that God is undeniably in control. From start to finish, he has had a plan, and that plan is unfolding just as he said it would. See, God doesn't give us all the details because he always wants to leave room for faith. Faith being the assurance of things hoped for, the, the conviction of things not yet seen. He wants you to trust in him and believe in his sovereign control to the point like Job, we proclaim as he does in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things, God, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You see, if that's what we believe, it brings tremendous assurance and security to life. And I hope that's the outcome of our time in the scripture this morning. So before we go there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to your word, we want to do so humbly. And just as we just sang, we want you to speak to our hearts. We want you to enlighten our minds, not because of any Thing that we possess on our own, but because of the work of your Spirit who helps us see things that are spiritually discerned that we could never understand apart from you. So Lord, your Word is living and active. You are living and active. You are present, and you speak. And so we want to listen to this morning as you speak to us through your Word. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Daniel chapter 7. And follow along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked. It was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind was also given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth, and Thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this, I kept looking, behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird, and a beast had four heads, and a dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. And I was contemplating the horns. Behold, another horn, a little horn, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like a man and mouth uttering great boasts. We've changed genres, haven't we? This is a little different than Daniel in the lion's den, but incredibly important. So let's think about what we just read. The first thing I want you to notice is the timing of this vision. It took place during the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, which means based on where we last left off, now we're going back in time. Specifically, we are in that 25-year period in between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. And as we'll see, this vision adds another layer to Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. In this dream, there were four beasts that rose up out of a stormy sea. In apocalyptic literature, the stormy sea often refers to the the nations of humanity or the the sea of humanity. And these four beasts represent four kings that arise from the earth. And those four kings, as we will see, are connected to the four kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue. The first one we learn is like a lion, so it's not exactly a lion. (laughs) but it's the closest animal that it resembles. And although the beast has a body of a lion, it has wings like an eagle. So what we have here is this ferocious animal that moves swiftly across the earth. What this is representing is a king that sweeps across the earth as he builds his empire. But then we learn that the wings of this animal are plucked off, and he's made to to stand up on his two feet like a man. And then we learn that he's given the mind of a man. Now, I want you to remember, this dream is taking place during the rule of Babylon. So there should be an event in the life of the Babylonians that this reminds you of, a beast that has a human mind. You may recall the judgment of God against Nebuchadnezzar when he was lost touch with reality and he he lived like a beast. Now, we know that he had a human mind, but that mind became distorted, so he lived like an animal. So knowing that, it would be most reasonable to understand this first beast to represent Babylon. This is the head of gold in Nebuchadnezzar's Dream. The second beast resembles a bear. Again, not a bear, but it looks similar to a bear. And this beast was raised up heavier on one side than the other. In its mouth were three ribs being held between its teeth. And based on the timing of this dream, we know that this is describing a kingdom that is yet to come, something that doesn't currently exist. So if we overlay this against the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, we know this second beast represents Medo-Persia, a kingdom formed by an alliance that was heavily weighted by the strength of the Persians. So it was a lopsided alliance, just like we see demonstrated in this bear. And it's possible that those three ribs represent the three nations that Medo-Persia captured or destroyed when they built their empire. The first one being Babylon, the second one being Egypt, and the third one being Lydia. The third beast was like a leopard and much more bizarre. We learn that it had four wings and four heads. So if wings meant that it moves swiftly across the earth, then four wings would mean it moves twice as fast. And what we know from history is that Alexander the Great conquered the world faster than any ancient empire that existed. And those four heads likely represent the four generals that took over his kingdom after he died. So do you see how these new visions, these new layers give increasing detail to what we've already learned? Now, next week, we'll see yet another layer in chapter eight. But for now, the repetition is intended to add increasing clarity. And remember, these are details about events that have occurred hundreds of years yet in the future. Okay, so this would be like somebody predicting 9-11 before planes were ever invented. Okay, think about that. Incredibly remarkable. These are details about nations that don't even exist at the time. The prophecy speaks about events that history later proves to be true. But we also learn that there are events that are still yet future, even future to us. And we see that being displayed in this fourth beast. The fourth beast is described as incomparable. It's unique. It's not like anything ever seen before. In fact, there was nothing it could be even related to. It wasn't like a lion. It wasn't like a, a bear or a leopard. It was something all its own. And like the iron part of the statue, this beast had iron teeth. It devoured. It crushed. It trampled everything in its path. And that reminds us of the Roman Empire and its tremendous military strength that absolutely destroyed everything in its path. But the vision goes on to describe things yet to come, things that go beyond the ancient Roman Empire. This beast is described as having ten horns, which we will later Uh, learn represent ten kings. But then there's this weird little horn that grows up and it destroys three of the previous horns. And this horn was different. It was described as having eyes like a man and a mouth that boasted prideful things. And so you, you can imagine how Daniel must have felt when all of these things were entering into his mind. They seem strange to us, don't they? But at least we have the Scripture and and even history itself to kind of make sense of some of these things. For Daniel, he would have no idea what's going on. Let's look at how it continues in verse 9. It says, I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow. And the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, thousands upon thousands attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. For the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away. But an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So what we have here is kind of like a scene change in Daniel's dream. We move from this nightmare on earth to this heavenly vision, something that's now taking place within the heavenly realm. And with that, Daniel sees thrones, thrones that are set up like a courtroom. So again, picture this in your mind. You have this courtroom with these thrones set up where the judge would be seated. And then it says, the Ancient of Days steps forward and takes his seat. We need to understand this is God, the one who eternally exists throughout all of history. This righteous judge assumes his position of authority. This description of God points to his purity. Everything is white. It's all surrounded by fire. So when you think about God, don't think about him like an, an older man who has curly hair. That's not what this is saying, okay? Apocalyptic literature always points to a deeper meaning. So what it wants us to understand is the holiness of God, the one who is without corruption. He is pure and white as snow. The throne of God was surrounded by thousands upon thousands of angelic beings. They, as we see, were attentive and ready for their bidding. You can kind of picture them like an an audience, a massive audience within this courtroom. And once everyone took their seat, it says that the book of judgment was then opened. And in the silence of the courtroom, you could hear the boastful words of that little horn being spoken, words that were spoken against the righteous rule of God. But in that moment, we see that judgment takes place and that beast is destroyed. As far as the other beasts, it says that their dominion was removed, but they were allowed to remain for a time. Now again, if we look at history, we know that when kingdoms were conquered, they were then absorbed into that next ruling empire. So in a sense, they were allowed to live for a time. But this final kingdom, once it is destroyed, there are no more earthly rulers. There are no more earthly kings. It's the end. Look at how it continues in verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days. and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So one, like the Son of Man, comes on a cloud. We know from other references in Scripture that this is undeniably Jesus. He enters the scene of the courtroom, and he approaches the throne, the Ancient of Days. And at this point, a transition takes place. The earthly dominion, once attributed to earthly kings, is now given to Jesus. And unlike earthly rulers, his dominion is everlasting. This is an eternal kingdom that knows no end. Now, I want you to listen to how Jesus actually describes this himself in his ministry in Matthew chapter 24, verse 29. Listen to what he says. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. See, it's important to understand that the age of the Gentiles ends at the second coming of Jesus Christ. This is the time when worldly nations ruled by earthly kings is over. And a new order of divine rule is established for eternity. So again, if we go back to Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this new order is established when that rock of Christ, as we talked about earlier, destroys The clay feet of that statue. This statue is intended to represent the age of the Gentiles. That time period when the world is ruled by earthly kings or or presidents or or, or dictators. Rulers of any kind. But when Jesus returns, the age of the Gentiles ends. And the earth is ruled by Jesus. Jesus and is populated by those who trust in Him. Now let's look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. The great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings, which will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. So, as you might expect, if you were the one having seen all these beasts and all these things going on, your your head would be spinning as you were trying to, to figure out what was going on. And this was happening to Daniel. He can't get a grasp on on what's happening. It's not making any sense to him. So in the midst of this vision, he speaks to one near him and asks for an interpretation, probably an angelic being as a part of this vision, and they give him an interpretation. But at first, it's just a, a general summary. What he says is that those four beasts represent four kings that will arise from the earth. And this would be consistent with what Daniel has already learned from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. The kingdoms, he then learns, will be destroyed and replaced with an eternal kingdom. And notice, the saints of God will be the ones who populate this kingdom of God. And maybe at this point, Daniel is listening to this and going, okay, that makes sense because he's connected it to what he's already been told. But it's that fourth beast that's still confusing to him. It just—it doesn't make sense. So he, he presses in deeper. Beginning in verse 19, he recounts everything that he had seen in his vision. He kind of relays it once again. But this time, we, we get a few more details. We learn that the, the beast is exceedingly dreadful, devouring everything in its path. As we'd already learned, it had ten horns, right? And then this little horn that came up and destroyed three of the previous horns. In verse 20, we get some more information. We learn that this little horn then grows taller than any of the other remaining horns. So what this is telling us is that this new ruler now becomes dominant over them all. In verse 22, we find that the the new ruler wages war against the saints and overcomes them. So this tells us that there's this season of persecution against those who have put their faith in God. But then we learn that God steps in and says, that's enough. He destroys the beast. He protects the saints who were then given an eternal kingdom. This is all that Daniel is recollecting as he's reviewing the dream again in his mind And I want you to listen to then how those details are now interpreted by this angelic being. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 23. Thus he said, explaining what just happened, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So one of the things in this fourth kingdom that's unique is its world dominion. Verse 23 says that it will devour the entire earth. So what that tells us is that this ten king alliance appears to establish a one world governance. But then a new person of power will come onto the scene, an 11th king, if you will. And this king will destroy three of the other previous kings, leaving seven of the original ten. What we then learn is that this 11th king will then grow stronger than any of the remaining kings and dominate them all. We learn that he will be a blasphemer, that he will speak against and oppose the rule of God. Instead, he will want to set up his own rule of law, and he will persecute anyone who does not submit to his authority, especially those who worship God as the one true king. But all this, we learn, will take place within a limited season of time. It's described at the end of verse 25 as as a time, times, and a half time. Does anybody have any idea what that means? Okay, good. That's because layers in and of themselves are difficult to understand. We we can't understand what that says without knowing what other scriptures say about it. But because of the other layers of scripture, we know that this is describing a time period of three and a half years, after which time this blaspheming king is annihilated and destroyed forever. Jesus is given rule over this final kingdom along with the saints who serve him. We see that this kingdom is eternal, that it will never be destroyed. Now, I want to give you another layer. You ready? Turn to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. This is a layer upon a layer upon a layer And just to kind of give you some context, the dragon in this passage is intended to represent Satan. The beast in this passage is the Antichrist. Listen to what it says, beginning in verse 1. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. On his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. So again, the ten horns represent the original ten confederation of nations that ruled the world. But the seven heads are the seven rulers that remained after that 11th king came on the scene. That new ruler is the Antichrist. He's referred to as the beast in this passage. And I want you to notice how he's described. This is amazing. Look at verse 2. And the beast... Which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth was like a mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and his throne and his great authority. I saw one of the heads as if it had been slayed, and its fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. They worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast? And who is able to wage war with him? They were given him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies. and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. All right, so you do the math. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Layers upon layers give us increasing clarity. Now, look at verse 6. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Who has been slain? If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Do you guys have ears? Then let you hear. This is just another layer. And it gives us more information about things that we've already learned from what we've seen in the book of Daniel. And we could go on because there's even more details about the Antichrist, the, the second coming of Christ, the, the earthly kingdom, the judgment of God, the restoration of all creation. It's there from start to finish. It's there. But my point is this. It's already been determined. Thank you for that. It's already been Determined. God wrote the story of history from start to finish. As as Job said, God can do all things, and no purpose of His can be thwarted. And if you put your faith in Him, this should bring incredible comfort to you. Yes, I know. Trust me, I know. There are some crazy things happening in our world today. But none of it. None of it changes what God has already determined to take place. And we need to understand that we have been given ears to hear because He's allowed us to see those details. We can see, even in the world in which we live today, the patience of God against a sinful, rebellious people who does not want any to perish but all to come to a place of repentance. We know that Christians will experience an an increasing degree of persecution. So am I surprised with all the changes that are happening in our world today? Absolutely not. It's just as he said it would be. And it will get a whole lot worse in time. But a day of judgment is coming. And those who faithfully follow God will be vindicated. So don't lose hope. If you are in Christ, your destiny has been determined. Your eternity is secure. We are here for more than a good life marked by worldly pursuits. We were here for something much greater than that. A purpose that was determined before the beginning of time. We are an important part of God's plan. Jesus says in Mark chapter 16 verse 14, go... Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. That's why you're here. Now listen, I know that this is hard to grasp when many times we just feel overwhelmed by daily life. I know for a fact that there are here this morning who have lost loved ones just this last week. There are people here this morning who are... Struggling in the midst of a difficult marriage. There are people here in the midst of, of all kinds of family dysfunction. Some even dealing with terminal illness. But if God has the power to determine every detail of history. If he will bring redemption and restoration to this entire world. Do you think that he's big enough to do what seems impossible to you? Absolutely. But seeing that happen always begins with believing that's possible. So I want to close together by reciting the words of of Job chapter 42 that I've mentioned several times. So if we could put that up there, let's say this together. You ready? I know... That you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If you are a child of God, that is the solid rock that you stand on. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, for the power of scripture that has revealed things that were yet future, that history is now validated. And now we know there are things that are still to come. And because of what has already happened, we know that they will just as assuredly take place. So Father, we know that all of history is in your hands. And we are your people and we belong to you. And our eternity is secure. And so Lord, give us strength in the midst of times that are so distracting and everything that tells us that things are out of control and they're not. Because you are in control and you have a plan and a purpose and we are a part of that. So may we be faithful to live according to that plan with absolute trust in you who will establish his kingdom and that kingdom will have no end and then all those who trust in you will live eternally in your loving presence. We will see you face to face. That is what we are living for. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. You know, I think passages like this are so important. Because I'm just like you. I get stuck in the here and now. And I need to be reminded of what will be. And as I hear all the things that you hear in the news, I need to be reminded that's not absolute truth. This is absolute truth. And so when I want to find hope and security, when I, that's interesting information, but this is real life. And so let's make sure that this is where we anchor our hope. And we know how this story ends because we know how the story began. And we know the one that's been in control from start to finish. So rest in that truth as you put your hope in Him. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our time this morning, for your goodness and grace. You didn't have to give us this story, but you did because you wanted us to know that you are in control, that you are good, and that you will accomplish everything you said you would, and you will bring restoration and peace, and there will be a day when we see you face to face and live eternally in your presence. So may we long for that day. May we live for that day. And may that be the hope of every day. We pray this in our name, in your name, amen. Amen. Have a great day.